Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Before delving into the next lecture in this class, I wanted to take a moment and invite you to Kingdom Fest 2017. This is the weekend of September 8th to 10th held at Living Hope Community Church near Albany, New York. It's a gathering of believers from all over to listen to teachings, to praise God in songs, and to fellowship together around meals and meet new friends as well as renew old friendships. Our theme this year is Yahweh, There Is No Other, based on Isaiah 45.5. This event is going to unify a number of biblical Unitarian groups, including not only our typical speakers, such as Living Hope's Vince Finnegan, my father, Living Faith Christian Church in Rhode Island, Victor Gluckin, Christian Outreach Fellowships in Lower New York, New York City area, John McCabe, but also we're bringing in John Shanehite to speak this year from Spirit and Truth International, Seth Ross from the Church of God General Conference, and Stan Chi with the Christian Disciples Church, very active throughout Asia. So if you listen to Restitutio, you might have heard of some of these names. Please consider coming to this weekend. I think it'll be a great time. If you want to get more information or register, drop by lhim.org. That's lhim.org. And click on the sidebar where it says Kingdom Fest. I hope to see you there. As for today, we're looking at lecture number 13, The Kingdom is Too Jewish. And this is actually part three of a series of three lectures on why some Christians ended up rejecting the kingdom message in the first few centuries of Christianity. And in this one, I I worked through a conglomeration of ideas around the Jewish reading of Scripture, the Jewish interpretation of Scripture, and the allegorical Greek way of reading Scripture. And essentially what we discover is that the Christians who didn't like the kingdom idea lumped in those who did believe in it with supporting Judaism against Christianity. In other words, kingdom advocates got labeled Judaizers, at least by the time of the 5th century, for supporting an interpretation that Jews were using to show that Jesus can't possibly be the Messiah. This became a really important subject where the kingdom message, the kingdom doctrine, actually became the battleground for whether or not you were with the Christians or with the Jews as far as whether or not Jesus is the legitimate Messiah. So without any further ado, here is episode 104, The Kingdom is Too Jewish. This is lecture 13, 13, Rejecting the Kingdom, part 3. And in this lecture, I want to look at why early Christians, what I mean by early Christians is Christians within the first few hundred years, decided that they didn't like the kingdom idea. We, we looked at two other reasons, one of which was that the kingdom is too crude, too unsophisticated. It graded on educated people's sense of the way the universe actually is. And the other was that the kingdom is too, what? Hedonistic. Hedonistic, right? It was too hedonic. It was 
It involved too much bodily pleasure. Which today would like not fly at all. Today would be like, oh wow, there's gonna be bodily pleasure in the kingdom? That sounds like a great idea. That sounds like good news. Whereas in uh, the, the period we're looking at, the first few centuries of the, the Christian era, that was really awkward about the kingdom. Right? So now we're going to look at another reason why the kingdom got rejected, and that is the kingdom is too Jewish. Now, as I've already mentioned to you before, there are plenty of people who believe in the kingdom at the same period as when other people are saying, hey, it's too Jewish, we can't believe in that. We looked at a ton of people yesterday, didn't we? We looked at Justin, we looked at Papias, Irenaeus, Commodianus, Victorinus, Lactantius, all these different people that continue to believe in the kingdom. So the question is really, why did these Christians, and I have three representatives from this perspective, I have Origen from the third century, Eusebius from the fourth century, and Jerome from the fifth century. By now these probably appear like the usual suspects. because <laughs> I keep quoting Origen, Eusebius, and Jerome, but they're the ones that are influential and fought hardest against the kingdom in the third, fourth, and fifth centuries. So naturally, I'm gonna go to them over and over to find the various reasons, because it wasn't just one reason that they rejected the kingdom. It was because they thought it was unsophisticated, they thought it was too hedonic and too Jewish. So let's get into this one. I want to start by showing you some evidence from Origen in the third century. He writes, Now some men who reject the labor of thinking and seek after the outward and literal meaning of the law picture to themselves the earthly city of Jerusalem rebuilt with precious stones laid down for its foundation and its walls erected of jasper and its battlements adorned with crystal. In other words, some people actually take Revelation 21 literally. That's the part that describes the city coming down from heaven and all these different precious stones. And he says of such people, they reject the labor of thinking. These people just are refusing to think about it. And the other point as well is that he says that's the literal meaning of the law. He goes on, then too, they suppose that aliens are to be given them to minister to their pleasures. Does anybody remember where that came from? We read that prophecy. Foreigners will shepherd your flocks. What'd you say? Isaiah. Isaiah? 60. Isaiah 60. So they suppose that aliens are to be given to them to minister to their pleasures, and they will have these for plowmen and vine dressers or wall builders. And they consider that they are to receive the wealth of nations to live on and that they will have control over their riches so that even camels of Midian and Ephah will come and bring gold, incense, and precious stones. This is almost a direct quote from Isaiah 60. All this they try to prove on prophetic authority from those passages of Scripture which describe the promises made to Jerusalem. Remember I told you Isaiah 60 is really about Jerusalem, and when it says you, it's talking about the city of Zion. And they quote from the Scriptures many other illustrations, the force of which they do not perceive must be figurative and spiritual. And this is a key component of how early Christians ended up dispensing with all those kingdom prophecies, especially from Isaiah. Then too, after the fashion of what happens in this life and of this world's positions of dignity or rank or supreme power, they consider that they will be kings and princes. You know who Origen's talking about? People like you people that actually believe in the kingdom. 
And to speak briefly, they desire that all things which they look for in the promises should correspond in every detail with the course of this life, that is, that what exists now should exist again. Such are the thoughts of men who believe indeed in Christ, but because they understand the divine scriptures in a what? Judaistic sense. Extract from them nothing that is worthy of divine promises. Now this is the main point. If you believe in the kingdom, according to origin, you're reading the scriptures in a Judaistic sense, in a Jewish sense. And that, for him, is itself wrong. Now, if I say to you, Josiah, you're reading the scriptures in a Jewish sense, he might take that as a compliment. But, but in their culture, that's an obvious slam. That's an obvious criticism. Interesting, right? That's the definition of good hermeneutics. Right, that's the definition of good hermeneutics. You read Jewish scriptures in a Jewish sense because that's how you understand somebody. What book does that come from? Like, where, where is that quotation from? It's, uh, his book is called De Principis, translated to English, that means on principles or on first principles. And that's book two, chapter 11, paragraph two. All right, now we have Eusebius here. Eusebius' famous book, of course, is his church history book. And he writes, in addition to all these letters, he, Dionysius of Alexandria, composed two treatises. We read this quote before, right? On promises occasioned by Nepos, a bishop of Egypt, who taught that the promises made to the saints in the divine scripture should be interpreted in a more Jewish fashion. And that there would be a sort of millennium of bodily indulgence on this earth. We looked at bodily indulgence last time. Now we're looking at the Jewish manner. So what's wrong with Nepos? He's reading the scriptures like a Jew is. Next uh, is his commentary on Isaiah. Eusebius writes, like the Jewish people who read the scriptures literally, one could assume that it is the land of Palestine. But according to the deeper meaning, ah, according to the final word, the high and heavenly and angelic word of God and the divine apostle of the heavenly Zion teaches that it is the Jerusalem above, which is the mother of us all. So you, you, if you read the scriptures like the Jewish people, then you're reading the scriptures literally. But if you read it like a Christian, you understand that these things are really talking about heaven. They're really talking about the Jerusalem above, right? And then, once again, same man, a little later in the same book, commentary on Isaiah, he says, and though the lion is carnivorous by nature, I mean, can you imagine trying to deal with the lion and the wolf and the lamb, that whole section of Isaiah 11, and you don't believe in the kingdom? Well, this is how he did it. And though the lion is carnivorous by nature, he shall be nourished with husks as a herbivorous animal. So too there are savage and coarse people who understand only the literal interpretation of the graces of the divine scripture, the divine scripture is the nourishing word for souls, but its secrets escape the notice of our minds, for the meaning is surrounded by a husk. <laughs> so, when the scriptures talk about the lion not eating animals anymore, but eating grains or vegetables, whatever it says there in Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, what that's really talking about is how you interpret scripture. Because scripture has a husk on it, a hard outer shell, and that's the literal meaning. And you have to penetrate below that to the inner meaning. All right, that's what Eusebius is saying here. So he takes a 
very strong kingdom passage and uses it to argue that people who believe in this are just reading the Bible wrong. <laughs> and then, of course, Jerome in the 5th century. This is uh, a quote we've already read from his book on illustrious men, and he mentions Papias. The part that is of interest here is the first line. He, Papias, is said to have published the Jewish opinion of 1,000 years of reign at the second coming. So once again, Papias is siding with the Jews on this whole idea of the kingdom. And he goes on to talk about how Tertullian also, in the hope of the faithful, advocates this Jewish view. But I think Jerome was wrong. And this is actually what Tertullian said. He said, it's interesting because Tertullian really agrees with Jerome. <laughs> so I don't know why Jerome said this, but uh, this is Tertullian. He writes, besides your Christ promises to the Jews their primitive condition with the recovery of their country and after this life's course is over, repose in Hades and Abraham's bosom. As for the restoration of Judea, however, which even the Jews themselves, induced by the names of places and countries, hope for just as it was described. It would be tedious to state at length how the figurative interpretation is spiritually applicable to Christ and his church, and to the character and fruits thereof. Besides, the subject has been regularly treated in another work, he's like, hey, read my other book, which we entitled De Spe Fidelium, on the hope of the faithful. At present, too, it would be superfluous for this reason that our inquiry relates to what is promised in heaven, not on earth. We do confess that a kingdom is promised to us upon the earth, although before heaven, only in another state of existence, inasmuch as it will be after the resurrection for a thousand years in the divinely built city of Jerusalem, let down from heaven, which the apostle also calls our mother from above. And while declaring that our politevma, or citizenship, is in heaven, he predicates of it that it is really a city in heaven. So he's taking everything that I've said to you in this class in the opposite sense. Uh, what I said to you is that when the apostle in Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven, that he goes on to say, from which we await a Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, who will you know, exert this power to transform our lowly bodies in conformity with his. So what's Tertullian doing here? He's saying, look, there is going to be a kingdom, it's going to be on earth. Then he goes on to say, of the heavenly kingdom, this is the process. After its thousand years are over, within which period is completed the resurrection of the saints, who rise sooner or later according to their deserts, there will ensue the destruction of the world and the conflagration of all things at the judgment. We shall then be changed in a moment into the substance of angels even by the investiture of an incorruptible nature, and so be removed to that kingdom in heaven. So Tertullian, like Jerome, doesn't believe in the kingdom on earth forever. Unlike Jerome, he does believe in a thousand-year reign. So this is kind of like a hybrid point of view, and ironically is what most Christians hold to this day. They believe that when you die, you go to heaven, then, when Christ comes back, you come with him to establish his reign on earth for a thousand years, and then you go back to heaven again. Now, that seems like a lot of extra travel to me. Right? The biblical model, as, as we've seen repeatedly, right, is that dead people are asleep, they didn't go anywhere. They're just dead. Until they get awakened 
by the Son of Man coming to raise them from the dead and establish his kingdom on the earth. That kingdom has an initial phase, call it a millennium, where Christ subdues all enemies. And then after that, we read how he's going to hand it over to God and God himself is going to dwell among us. The kingdom idea from a scriptural point of view is that it's here the whole time, but these early Christians, Tertullian writes around 202, 197, 202, there's, depending on which book we're talking about here. Even as early as a couple hundred years after Christ, they're coming up with these hybrid views that we're going to be on the earth and then we're going to go to heaven. But that's not really my point here. My point here is to show you that he says you have to interpret the scripture figuratively and spiritually. And that's just the same thing Jerome's saying, even though he doesn't like Tertullian. Those who assert that he, uh, this is Jerome again, commentary to Isaiah. Those who assert that the ceremonies of the old law should be observed in the church of Christ by the stock of faithful Israel, those should also look forward to a golden Jerusalem for a thousand years. He's like make, making fun of these people. Like, why don't you just look for a golden Jerusalem? that they may offer sacrifices, be circumcised, that they may sit on the Sabbath, sleep, become sated, drunk, and rise to frolic, their amusement being offensive to God. Jerome's the kind of guy you don't want to get in an argument with in a public space because you're somehow going to look bad. <laughs> he's, he's, he's really crude. <laughs> and, he's, and he's brilliant too, which is even worse. <laughs> the wise Christian reader should retain this rule. This is actually a really important one. This is Jerome once again, the wise Christian reader. So if you want to be a wise reader, you better do this. This rule of the prophetic promises. Whatever the Jews and our Judaizers, or rather not ours, contend will happen carnally, that means physically, we should show to have been accomplished already spiritually so that we not be compelled to Judaize according to the apostle, on account of these sorts of tales and tangled questions, right? So what is Jerome saying? He's saying, anytime you see a prophecy about the future, anytime you see a prophecy about the kingdom, you need to apply it to the church spiritually. And they did this. They would say, look, Isaiah says the, the swords are going to go into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks, right? Isaiah 2 or 11, one of those Isaiah prophecies. That's already happened to us in the church. We used to be violent people, and we came to Christ, and now we're at peace with our fellow man. Right? So that, that's what they're doing. They're saying everything has a spiritual interpretation that relates to the church, not to the future age. All right, so that's the problem. Now, that's the top of the iceberg. But as you know, icebergs go down a good ways, right? And so the question is, why in the world do they feel this desire to associate literal interpretation with Judaism and allegorical interpretation or spiritual interpretation with Christianity and being wise and sophisticated? Well, I want to look at two points with you. One is responding to Judaism. That's like the standard Christian response to Judaism. And then the other is the battle over interpretation. And hopefully this will help make some sense of things. Now, it's important to keep in mind that especially in the third century, second century, third century, fourth century, Judaism was the big show. Christianity was small. Christianity was in the ghetto. 
it was in the, like if you're gonna go meet somewhere with Christians, you're gonna wake up really early because everyone has to work still. And you're gonna meet somewhere in an upper apartment you know, just like today in an in a urban area, the lower level of a building often will be shops, right? And then upstairs is where you have apartments. That's where you're gonna meet if you're with the Christians. And the kind of people that are there are gonna be peasants, unsophisticated, normal, blue collar, everyday folks. Now, if you go to the Jewish synagogue, you're gonna have this huge building and it's gonna be beautiful. And there's going to be artwork on the side by some famous person. And then there's going to be all these other decorations and furnishings that people have donated over the centuries. <laughs> and so you're going to meet in some little upstairs apartment and be a Christian, or you're going to go to the Jewish synagogue where, and you know, they love the Jewish, people were impressed by the Jews. Roman folks in general and Greeks, they really appreciated how ancient the Jewish faith was. They didn't like the Jews in the sense that they didn't worship their gods, right? That was offensive to them. But they could accept Judaism because at least Judaism has a temple. At least Jews offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices. That's something that Romans could understand because that's what they did too. These Christians, however, what in the world do they, they called them atheists. Like you don't believe in our statues, you're atheists. And they made up stories about the Christians. They called us cannibals because we eat the body and uh, blood of our Lord. And they call us incestuous because we, give, we call each other brother and sister. And we give, they give the kiss of peace. You know, and there's just all these kinds of rumors surrounding. So Christianity is a low status, new religious movement. In, I'm talking in the Roman Empire. And then Judaism is a sort of like well-established, interesting, but like weird cult that has a lot of money. It's from a Roman perspective, okay? And the Jews, they had this interesting language, right? Hebrew. Hebrew is fast. Anybody that, that studies Hebrew is immediately struck by just even the letters. You know, they're, they're just interesting, right? They're so different than Latin and Greek languages. You know, and they have special clothing. Yeah, so Jews and, and Christians competed for adherence. Uh, they had superior access to the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible. Most Christians couldn't read Hebrew. Origen learned how to read Hebrew, but I mean, most Christians couldn't read Hebrew. They had a very developed religious calendar. You go to the Jewish service, I mean, it, it was good. It's like going to the mega church or going to the, to, to the house church. Which one do you want to go to? The mega church has got the lights, it's got the action, it's got the professional worship team, and the, the pastor has got that that smile, that dimple in his cheek, and you know the impressive slides and all this. Or, or you can go to the house church where like, the pastor is like, missing a tooth because he, he, he's, he's been working some other job, and you know, they, they don't even sing because like, they tried that once and it was bad. So you know what I mean? Like, which one do you want to go to? So Christians are in a deadlock of competition with the Jews for people to come, and it's not easy. The most ancient church that has ever been discovered comes from a city, Dura Europis, in the year 256. It's an interesting story because Dura Europis was a town, it's, in, uh, it's near like Iraq, it's Iraq, Iran, like over, over in that direction. For whatever reason, the people left the city. Maybe they were under attack or something. And then there was a sandstorm and it covered 
enough of the city that the people decided not to come back and rebuild. And then another sandstorm came and another and another, and it just buried the city. And so they did excavations on the city and they found a Jewish synagogue and they found a church. They have it on display, it travels the world, the, um, the frescoes, the wall paintings from this church and also from the synagogue and from some pagan temples as well. And you look at the, the artwork in the church and it's like stuff my kid could have drawn. I mean, it's not very good. And then you look at the artwork from the Jewish synagogue and it's like these incredible, beautiful, colorful pieces, <laughs> mosaics depicting all the scenes from the Old Testament. You know, so I'm just trying to give you a little perspective here. As late as the fourth century, a Christian named John Chrysostom, that means golden mouth, preached a series of sermons. In fact, a nine part series of sermons called Against the Jews. And in homily one, he says, but these Jews, this is in the fourth century in Antioch. Now Antioch is relatively close to Jerusalem and, and that sort of thing, but it's a, it's a Roman city, Greco-Roman city. It's not really a Jewish city. It's where Paul got um, his start with Barnabas, right, in Antioch. So anyhow, John is the uh, bishop there in Antioch or a pastor there in Antioch. And he says, but these Jews are gathering chorus. He just, he just cuts loose on the Jews. It's really hard to read even. These Jews are gathering choruses of effeminates. And, that's like sissies. And a great rubbish heap of harlots, prostitutes. They drag into the synagogue the whole theater, actors and all. And, and in their culture, like you, you wouldn't want to be, be related to an actor or like have any friends that are actors. They're just like the lowest rung of the ancient <laughs> social ladder. Like these are these weirdos that pretend like there's someone else, like, ugh. And so he says, well, yeah, these Jews, they're, they're, they've got like actors in the synagogues. You know, that's really bad. For there is no difference between the theater and the synagogue. I know that some suspect me of rashness. Yeah, I suspect you of rashness, John. Um, if they do not think that this is so, if my declaration that the two are the same rests on my own authority, then charge me with rashness. But if the words I speak are the words of the prophet, then accept his decision. Many I know respect the Jews and think that their present way of life is a venerable one. This is why I hasten to uproot and tear out this deadly opinion. I said that the synagogue is no better than a theater and I bring forward a prophet as my witness. Look at how he, he lays into him. It's just unbelievable. Surely the Jews are not more deserving of belief than their prophets. You had a harlot's brow. You became shameless before all. It's probably from Hosea, right? Where a harlot has set herself up, that place is a brothel. But the synagogue is not only a brothel and a theater, it's also a den of robbers and a lodging for wild beasts. Jeremiah said, your house has become for me the den of a hyena. He does not simply say of wild beast, but of a filthy wild beast. And again, I have abandoned my house. I have cast off my inheritance. But when God forsakes a people, what hope of salvation is left? When God forsakes a place, that place becomes the dwelling of demons. You can just imagine him preaching this. The synagogue is a brothel. It's a theater. It's a den of hyenas. Why are you going there? Why, why would a pastor preach like this? Because his people are going to the synagogue. When's the last time you heard a sermon of a pastor that's like, don't you go to that synagogue? Don't do it. You don't hear that. Now this is an interesting little story he tells. Three days ago, believe me, I am not lying, I saw a woman of good bearing, modest and a believer. 
a brutal, unfeeling man, reputed to be a Christian, for I would not call a person who would dare do such a thing a sincere Christian, was forcing her to enter the shrine of the Hebrews and to swear there an oath about some matters under dispute with him. After I talked with him at length and had driven the folly of his error from his soul, I asked him why he rejected the church and dragged the woman to the place where the Hebrews assembled. He answered that many people had told him that oaths sworn there were more to be feared. <laughs> and so you get the impression the Jews are the big show, the Christians are the upstars, the Jews have this interesting language. People in the empire generally think that the uh, synagogues, especially the, the uh, rabbis, have magical powers and that they can heal. And if you're going to get your house blessed or your business to have somebody swear an oath, you go to the synagogue, even if you're not Jewish. Really kind of a fascinating thing going on here. However, the Jews offered major challenges against early Christianity because they, by their, the very fact that there are Jews challenges Christianity. Their very existence presents a challenge. Secondly, they actively competed for converts. And third of all, the Jewish denial centered on Jesus' failure to fulfill Messianic age prophecy. All right, so on the first one there, their very existence presented a challenge. Isn't Jesus the Jewish Messiah? Why is it that his own people have rejected him? Why? I mean, if he's really the Messiah, wouldn't his own people believe in him? So that's the challenge there. And then they actively competed for converts. We've talked about that. And then the third one, Jewish denial centered on Jesus' failure to fulfill Messianic age prophecy. Look, if Jesus is the Messiah, where's the kingdom? That's the whole point of the Messiah from the Old Testament. You read those prophecies of like Isaiah 11, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and, you know, the spirit of wisdom and counsel and strength and the fear of the Lord, and he will judge the nations and justice will be the uh, belt around his waist and the animals will get along. Like it's all messianic age stuff, right? And so this is uh, the point that Robert Wilkin makes. He writes, if these prophecies have not been fulfilled historically, that is, these things are not happening, then the Messianic age has not arrived and Jesus cannot be the Messiah. So if the kingdom prophecies are not now happening, in what sense can we say Jesus is the Messiah? That's the challenge that the Jewish folks are raising against the Christian folks when they have arguments together and when they're trying to convince people to come to church or come to temple. Origen writes, for the hard-hearted and ignorant members of the circumcision have refused to believe in our Savior because they think that they are keeping closely to the language of the prophecies that relate to him. He doesn't call them like our spiritual cousins or something like that. He calls them hard-hearted and ignorant members of the circumcision. <laughs> and why, why don't they believe in our Savior? Because they're, too, they're keeping closely to the language. They're, they're reading the Bible too literally. That's what their problem is. 
And they see he did not literally proclaim release to the captives or build what they consider to be a real city of God. Further, they think that it is, a, it is the wolf, <laughs> the four-footed animal, which is said in prophecy to be going to feed with the lamb and have seen none of these events literally happening during the advent of him whom we believe to be Christ. They did not accept our Lord Jesus, but crucified him on the ground that he had wrongly called himself Christ. That's pretty vicious, huh? Then the question becomes, where does this impulse to allegorize come from? Now, the word allegory is the practice, or to allegorize is the practice of reading a sacred text, for example, Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and then saying everything in that text really refers to something else. And that was a standard academic practice by Origen's time. By the third century, this was a normal way of reading sacred texts. And so you have Christian versus Jewish interpretations. The Christians, Origen wants to argue, allegorize. And the way Origen thinks of it, you can read about this in book four of De Principis, is you have these different levels and you have the surface level and that's what the text actually says. So when you're reading the Bible, you have the surface level. And then you have the soul of scripture. It's the second deeper level of reading. And then at least sometimes you have the spirit level, which is like ultra deep. If you think of a body, so you have the, the surface level, then you have the soul, and then you have in the middle of it, the spirit. And he's talking about how you read the Bible. He's not talking about people. He's talking about the, he's, he, he looks at the scripture as having these different layers of meaning. And unsophisticated, unlearned, or Jewish people, who by the way, were very sophisticated and learned, <laughs> um, they read just the surface level. And that's why they keep getting everything wrong. And so if you join Origen, you listen to his sermons, you listen to his, read his writings, he's gonna tell you what the scripture really means by going to these deeper levels. And so that's this whole idea of allegory. The trigger to allegorize. How do you know when to allegorize and when not to allegorize? By the way, Paul does this at least once in Galatians. He talks about the two mountains right? Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Sinai represents, do you remember what it said? Yeah, it was like Sarah and Hagar. Yeah. Hold on, let, let me show it to you. Sinai is Hagar. And he actually uses the word allegorically, right? This is the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. That's the verse they keep quoting. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, and so on. Hagar represents Mount Sinai, and Sarah represents Mount Zion. So what is the apostle doing here? I think it's interesting what he's not doing. He's not saying there wasn't a Mount Sinai. He's not saying there wasn't a Hagar. He's not saying these Old Testament accounts aren't historical. 
But what he's doing is he's saying, let's think of it like this. This represents this and that represents that. And so what do you want to do? Go back into slavery? That's kind of his point here in Galatians 4. Whereas Origen is going to say, and this is my beef with him, you're reading it as if it actually happened. It didn't actually happen. That really represents this other truth. So it's, a, I think, a much stronger allegory. This is what Joseph Trigg writes. He says, he's an origin scholar. He says, if the Bible is inspired by God, but appears in places to be irrelevant to our condition, unworthy of God, or simply banal, we may take it for granted that we have failed to grasp its inner sense. If no spiritual significance is apparent on the surface, we must conclude that this surface, which may or may not be factual, is intended symbolically. So that's what happens. Origen or Eusebius or Jerome or Tertullian, they'll be reading through the Bible, they'll get to some part that doesn't fit with their beliefs. And so what they do is they say, oh, well, this really means this. They spiritualize it, they allegorize it, they find some symbolic meaning. Moreover, there are prophecies, Origen writes, spoken of Israel and Judah, which relate what is going to happen to them. And when we think of the extraordinary promises regarded about these people, promises that so far as literary style go as are poor and distinguished by no elevation or character that is worthy of a promise of God, is it not clear that they demand a mystical interpretation? Right? So you encounter something that disagrees with your beliefs, so what do you do? You change what it means. We, ha we still have this in Christianity today, sadly, and it's bad. So what, I'm, what am I saying overall? I'm saying that some early Christians, sophisticated, educated early Christians who were already trained in the interpretation style of allegory from having read Homer's. If you ever read Homer, the gods are terrible. They're wicked. They're jealous. They're petulant. They rape people, right? And so, what are you to conclude about this great sacred text? You're reading it too literally. What it really means is it's talking about the hydrologic cycle. It's talking about how the rain falls, and this god represents this, the clouds, and this one represents the ground. And, and that, seriously, that's how they would interpret it. And so that was the standard way of interpreting sacred texts that seem to say something that disagrees with your beliefs or that is, is inappropriate. And so, as soon as they approach the Bible, they just do the same thing there. And what they do is they say, well, the Jews interpret the Bible literally, and that's why they don't believe in Jesus. We interpret it spiritually, and you get that sense of superiority, like, oh, you're reading the carnal meaning, you know, the, the fleshly meaning. I'm reading the spiritual meaning. But in reality, you're just changing what it says to be whatever you want it to say. All right, so I've got a little concluding statement here. What about the idea of two comings? I mean, how would you solve the issue of Jewish disbelief? This is how I would go about solving it. And I, I think you will agree this is a very easy way to deal with it. What about the idea of two comings? Jesus comes the first time to redeem hum humankind and the second time to establish God's kingdom on the earth. Oh wait, we just solved all the problems. Because <laughs> like, again, what was the Jewish response? It was well, if he's really the Messiah, where's the kingdom? I mean, if, if somebody asked me that, my instantaneous response is, oh, he's going to do that. That's why he's coming back. But nobody was saying that. I don't really know why, but whatever. Thus, the Messiah has come 
and he engaged in a lot of messianic activity, but he did not consummate the messianic age yet. That is what he is coming back to do. This simple solution to the same problem frees us to accept the many kingdom prophecies and embrace Jewish interpretations. Thus, when Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth, we need not insist that this has already happened. When Daniel prophesies about a coming kingdom where all people, nations, and languages will serve the Son of Man, we can simply accept this beautiful hope without engaging in interpretational contortions. Furthermore, over the last century, and we're going to get to this in our next lecture, scholars have completely reversed their estimation of the importance of the Jewishness of Jesus. Following Albert Schweitzer's devastating critique, which is called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, in 1906, Jesus scholars became sensitive to the danger of reconstructing a Jesus in their own image. Now people find a non-Jewish Jesus hard to believe. I mean, let's face it, Jesus is a Jew, right? Often the more Jewish one's interpretation, the more plausible it is. The apocalyptic Jesus proclaiming the coming reign of God on earth is immensely more believable than the sanitized belief in a disembodied heavenly existence of souls enjoying a beatific vision ad infinitum. That means forever. So this was one of the main reasons that they rejected Christianity. Again, just like the other two reasons, it does not hold water today. Nobody would say this today. So any questions? When we come back, we'll look at rediscovering the kingdom. We've been talking about how it was lost. Now we can talk about how it was found. I hope you found that enlightening. I certainly was totally shocked to hear some of the Christian comebacks to the Jewish argument that Jesus is not the Messiah because he did not bring the kingdom. I feel like this is an issue that is still alive today to some degree, even though the Christian interpretation strategy of allegory is no longer very popular, at least among most Protestant Christians, although I think Orthodox Christians uh, do still employ allegory to a certain extent. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there. But it's, it's just so sad to hear that this message was lost on the charge that it was too Jewish. I mean, think about that. How could you possibly be too Jewish? Jesus is Jewish. Paul is Jewish. Everybody, every, the whole Bible is Jewish. So the, the whole argument seems like a total non sequitur today. Anyhow, I wanted to let you know also about an upcoming live class that you can take part in at the Atlanta Bible College. I know some of you have taken this class, this Kingdom class, but also others that I've run here on Restitutio. But on September 18th to the 22nd, I'm going to be teaching basic Bible doctrine down at the Atlanta Bible College, and this would be an opportunity for you to get in the classroom. This is a much more interactive way to learn because just by the nature of the medium of the podcast and the way microphones work and the visual aids I use in the classroom, I have to edit my classroom lectures significantly so that they are usable in this format. But if you come down to take the this class, the Basic Bible Doctrine, you're not only going to learn 12 or so main doctrines in the Bible— but you're also going to be able to participate and be part of the visual experience and also meet other students and interact as well. So if you're interested in this, hey, it'd be great to see you down there in Atlanta, September 18th, that week, Monday to Friday. 
contact David Krogh at the Atlanta Bible College. You can just look up his email at atlantabiblecollege.com. He's the registrar, and he can help you make the arrangements to come, whether you want to just sit in and audit, or if you want to actually take the class for credit. Either way, it'd be great to see you there. And stay tuned on Sunday for our next Offscript. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.